All right, proof listeners, I want you to close your eyes. Okay, except for those of you driving or operating heavy machinery, the rest of you, close your eyes. I'm going to take you to a special place. I want you to picture yourself standing outside in the sun. It's a hot and humid day. And in front of you is a perfectly ripe pineapple. It's cut into cubes. It's cool to the touch. You bite into one, and it's indescribably sweet. A touch of tartness, incredibly juicy. It tastes like a tropical summer condensed into one delicious bite. Ah, can you picture the moment? Can you tell that you're standing on the bustling streets of Taipei? Taiwan is an island that's positively pineapple mad. You'll find it in more than just fruit form. Pineapple is baked into cakes and served in beef noodle soups. And this year, pineapples have become a source of intense civic pride for the Taiwanese. Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, we'll bring you a story that's more than just about a delicious fruit. There's fighting, geopolitical strife, a social media hashtag that goes viral, a lot of incredible sounding food, and most importantly, the question of what it means to be Taiwanese. I'm Kevin Pang. This is Proof. Stay tuned. Kai McNamee brings us this story. Oh, and you can open your eyes now. I'm in Taipei, walking around with my mom, Jessica. This area we're in is basically known for being a student study slash lunch spot. There are a few big cram schools here, or bushiban, which are like tutoring businesses. There are restaurants lining the street, food vendors on the sidewalk, and coffee and tea shops at every corner. Okay, we're in the Nanyang Jie, which is a really famous bushiban. So basically, all the students who failed the entrance exam, especially college entrance exam or high school entrance exam, they all come here to study like 12, 14 hours a day. And because they're here spending 14 hours, 12 hours, they need a lunch. And that's why a lot of little shops here catering for young kids. My mom was born and raised here before moving to Los Angeles, where I grew up. Did you go to Busiban here? No, I never did. Oh. You're just too smart. No, I was too dumb. <laughs> <laughs> There's an incredible medley of smells and sounds as we walk down the bustling street. We wade through crowds of students and walk past noodle shops, dumpling stands, push carts stacked with buns. But we're looking for one thing in particular, pineapples. I had been in Taiwan visiting family for about a month when the fruit started popping up all over. I first noticed it on social media. One tweet by a Taiwan-based journalist I saw was a gift from the show Friends. I've never watched the show, but I guess it's Joey caressing a pineapple and saying, Why are we fighting this? You know you want it to happen as much as I do. I want you. I need you. Andrew Ryan, the author of the tweet, wrote in the caption, This is, quote, all of Taiwan right now, unquote. Then I started to notice pineapples popping up in unusual food creations. 
I heard about restaurants making pineapple shrimp balls, pork-wrapped pineapple, and pineapple bento boxes. I saw posts about breakfast shops using pineapples. I saw it cut pineapples at one of those sushi conveyor belt restaurants. Pineapples are popular in Taiwan for sure, but I thought this was kind of a lot. I didn't think pineapples were that big a deal in Taiwanese cuisine. When I think of Taiwanese food, I think of beef noodle soup, fermented tofu, zongzi, sticky rice dumplings, you know, the stuff I'd eat visiting my grandma in Taipei. So when my mom and I set out looking for pineapples, we wanted to figure out what the fruit craze was all about. Eventually, we stopped at a convenience store. In the refrigerated food aisle, we find boxes of cut pineapples, each with a shiny gold label. Oh, there. What does it say? We eat pineapple helping farmer. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's like a little, like, lunchbox size. Yeah, so basically just put a sticker on it. Oh, yeah, describe, describe what the sticker says. Okay, so the sticker has a picture of a pineapple and basically say, eat pineapple helping the farmer. It turns out, the story of how the pineapple became this super trendy thing I was seeing everywhere starts with a trade ban. In a surprise announcement, China has declared an import ban on Taiwan pineapples, citing the presence of pests inside... On March 1st this year, China banned the import of Taiwanese pineapples. Chinese customs officials claimed they found pests in the fruits, but Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen says China's just making up an excuse to bully Taiwan. China claims Taiwan as a part of its territory, so some saw the ban as a way for China to increase its control over Taiwan. In response to the ban, people around the world took to the internet to voice their support for Taiwanese farmers. President Tsai told people to, quote, eat pineapples until you burst, kicking off what some have called a pineapple war. Photos of diplomats and politicians posing with pineapples were everywhere. The Canadian Trade Office posted a photo on Facebook captioned, We in the Canadian office like pineapple pizza, especially pineapples from Taiwan. Even former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo tweeted a photo of himself eating Taiwanese dried pineapples. It's a picture of him in front of a chessboard with the caption, Checkmate. People everywhere were buying Taiwanese pineapples and posting about it with the hashtag FreedomPineapple. Back in Taiwan, supermarkets were selling out of this stuff. Restaurants were starting to incorporate them in creative ways. So many people in Taiwan bought pineapples that it actually exceeded the amount sent to China in a normal year. Overnight, eating pineapples became a patriotic act of resistance. The way I see it, this Freedom Pineapple campaign actually says a lot about the history of Taiwan and what it means to be Taiwanese. Let me explain. Taiwan's place in the world has always been wrapped up in political controversy. Growing up, I never really knew how to respond when people would ask if being Taiwanese is the same thing as being Chinese. Taiwan has a complex history with mainland China, and people's understanding of Taiwanese identity has been shaped by that history. It's complicated, but for a moment, the pineapple came to represent a unified form of solidarity. Politics, history, and identity all converged with the pineapple at the middle of it all. This is the story about how the pineapple became a symbol of Taiwanese pride. Hi. Hey, Hong Shifu, you're welcome. Hi. 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 Hi.
Chef Hong Qingleng has been making headlines for his involvement in the pineapple saga. I met him in April, and my mom's with me to help translate. He runs Hong Shifu, or Chef Hong, a noodle restaurant in Taipei. They specialize in beef noodle soup. It's a noodle dish with a savory beef and soy sauce-based soup, big chunks of braised beef, and round wheat noodles. It's usually topped with veggies like bok choy and sour pickled mustard greens. Recently, he made a pineapple version of the classic Taiwanese dish. As a chef, he works with a lot of local ingredient suppliers, and Chef Hong says he feels a strong responsibility to his partners. So buying pineapples and seeing what they could do with them seemed like an obvious way to support local farmers. To Chef Hong, the pineapple beef noodle soup is a way to share Taiwanese cuisine in the face of the ban. Taiwanese people really enjoy fruit. We are a kingdom of fruit, he says. Naturally, news of the ban was disappointing. He told me, quote, When we heard that China had rejected our pineapples, we thought it was really a shame that politics interfered. It felt like it had little to do with food exports, unquote. Chef Hong said he thinks Taiwanese people should be proud of the island's pineapples. It's a great honor for Taiwan when people incorporate them into their cooking, he said. So as soon as Chef Hong and his team heard about China's ban, they got to work on thinking of a recipe. Chef Hong says they went out and bought three pineapples that day. They went downstairs to the kitchen and started experimenting. At first, he said they tried just combining pineapples with the beef and adding it to the soup. Pineapple beef is already a dish you can get at restaurants in Taiwan, so they thought it shouldn't be that bad. Wrong, he says. The experimental batches were either way too sweet or way too sour. They tried and failed again and again. But after a few days, he says they developed a process that seemed to work. In this version of the soup, Chef Hong separates the flesh of the pineapple from the juice. The soup is then stewed with just the flesh. In the final dish, the pineapple flavor is subtle, but the bits of fruit add a bite of sweetness every now and then. It's a delicate balance, he says, because they have to be careful about the pineapples they use. There are a bunch of different strains of pineapples, so depending on the strain and the time of year they're harvested, the flavors can vary. Some are sweeter, some are more sour. When the band started in March, the pineapple harvest was just getting underway. The pineapple's flavor shifts from sour to peak sweetness over the course of the season. Chef Hong says that despite the initial skepticism, the soup has been a big hit. He told me pineapple has an umami flavor, and when mixed with beef, is really good. He says their customers, quote, eat every drop of every bowl, soup, juice, noodles, beef and pineapple, they don't leave anything behind, unquote. My mom and I tried the soup, and I can confirm it does taste pretty good. When I interviewed Chef Hong, I wanted to know if the politics of the pineapple war had any impact on him personally. More specifically, if he identified as Taiwanese, I wanted to know how the Freedom Pineapple campaign impacted his view of that identity. So I asked Chef Hong, would you identify yourself as Taiwanese? And he kind of deflected. He said, 
Quote, regarding cross-strait political culture, it is a sensitive issue and will not be discussed for the time being, unquote. What might seem like a simple question gets at a complicated history of politics and colonialism. Identity and what it means to be Taiwanese versus Chinese has been a taboo subject until pretty recently. Chef Hong's from a generation where the government really didn't want people talking about that stuff. The Freedom Pineapple campaign has triggered a surge in Taiwanese nationalism. But the concept of what it means to be Taiwanese has a contentious, politicized history. Much of it has to do with relations between Taiwan and mainland China, which is often referred to as cross-strait politics. To understand why, we're going to have to dig into some history. Part of what makes this complicated is the status of Taiwan in the world. In practice, Taiwan is an independent country. It has its own government, its own elections, its own military. But China claims ownership of the island. So few countries actually recognize Taiwan diplomatically. That's led to conflict between China, Taiwan, and other countries. I'm not going to be able to cover everything in detail, so to break it down, I'm going to split this into roughly three sections. We're going to start in the 1900s, move into the post-World War II era, then talk about the last few decades. Stick with us here, because some of the history gets a little dense. So it's 1912. The Republic of China is founded in mainland China, and it's run by the Chinese Nationalist Party, or the KMT. So when the Republic of China was established in 1912, actually Taiwan was a colony of Japan. That's Professor Ho Ming-shou. He's a sociology professor at the National Taiwan University. Professor Ho says that over time, the people living on the island of Taiwan began developing a form of ethnic identity. There were indigenous groups and people whose family immigrated from the mainland as early as the 16th century. They had seen several colonial regimes leading up to then, including by the Dutch and the Spanish. And I think the turning point is really the Japanese colonies. For this half century, you have colonizers from Japan. And for the islanders who may compose of different ethnic groups coming from China and also indigenous people, these people began to have a common identity called Taiwanese. During this period, pineapple cultivation was a key industry. Taiwan has the perfect climate. It's tropical, so there's lots of warmth and sun. Pineapples do best in areas immediately north and south of the equator, like Costa Rica, the Philippines, Brazil, and Hawaii. At this point, pineapple exports mostly went to Japan. That is, until after World War II, when a few big changes happen. The first change? Japan loses control over Taiwan. As a part of Japan's surrender in the Second World War, they hand over Taiwan to the Republic of China. The second change? The Communist Party, or CCP, rises to power in mainland China. After a decades-long civil war, the CCP overthrows the KMT government in 1949. The new communist government on the mainland is called the People's Republic of China. The KMT flees to Taiwan, keeping the Republic of China name. What's next is a long period of authoritarian rule in Taiwan. Now we're getting into the post-World War II era. Professor Ho says the KMT governed the island with an iron fist between the 50s and 90s. They enforced martial law for 38 years, a world record for the time. They jailed and killed dissidents, academics, and anyone accused of threatening the KMT's rule. In one especially brutal crackdown known as the White Terror, it's estimated that between 18 and 28,000 people were killed. The KMT also tried to suppress Taiwanese culture, 
majority of the people who in Taiwan speak Hakka, speak Taiwanese as their mother tongue, but they were forbidden to speak that language in the public sphere for such a long time. So you can imagine that the post-war period is really like a new, it's like a continuity of colonialism. The KMT's nationalist Chinese ideology was forced into schools and public spaces. The government declared Mandarin the official language, and monuments and media campaigns touted the glory of traditional Chinese culture. The state's ultimate goal was to take the mainland back from the communists and incorporate Taiwan into their vision of one unified China. On the international politics side of things, most of the world still recognized the KMT as the legitimate rulers of China, meaning the mainland. It's this weird time where everyone knows mainland China is run by the communists, but the U.S. and its allies don't want to admit it. It's the Cold War. There were a series of military fiascos in the Taiwan Strait, and some people thought clashes between the KMT and CCP could lead to World War III. Chef Hong actually grew up on Jinmen, one of the islands in the middle of all of this. It's a small island off the coast of mainland China, and it's always been a significant military position for Taiwan. Before moving to Taiwan when he was 17, he'd do odd jobs for soldiers on the military base, who'd pay him in flour and canned beef. In Jinmen, the threat of conflict between Taiwan and mainland China was always looming in the background of Chef Hong's childhood. Chef Hong says that turmoil is what led to the evolution of Taiwanese beef noodle soup. When KMT soldiers brought beef noodle soup to Taiwan, the dish incorporated techniques and ingredients from several areas of the mainland. Soup techniques from Guangdong, chili bean sauce from Sichuan, homestyle noodles from Shandong. What makes the Taiwanese version distinct is the chunks of braised beef. While this is all happening, Taiwan's pineapple industry is booming. Pineapple exports climbed as high as 4 million cases per year. In 1971, Taiwan was the number one pineapple exporter in the world. 1971 was also the year Western countries officially recognized the communist government in mainland China. This put Taiwan into this weird limbo state. It's basically independent, but it's not really recognized as independent internationally. Ever since then, the People's Republic of China has claimed Taiwan as its own territory. When we return, pineapples become a global hashtag. Eating food can transport us to different places and times. We're able to explore a new world with just one bite. That's exactly what President of Veroni USA, Marco Veroni, wants for anyone who tries their cured meats. I like to think that when people taste our product, that's the way of having the cheapest trip to Italy. Because uh, tasting our salami, our prosciutto, our mortadella is the real way to discover the taste of Italy. Their careful production process helps preserve the quality of the ingredients and let the authentic flavors shine through. With Veroni's cured meats, no matter where you are, a trip to Italy is just one bite away. OXO product engineer Noah Panalovich wants to make sure OXO's cooking tools exceed your expectations. That's why the engineers go to lengths to make sure the tools add value to your life and make everyday tasks better. 
We want to make sure that users would only have even better experiences. We want to make sure it could last a really long time, perform consistently over its lifetime. And that's one of the reasons we did so much cycle testing to make sure what we were putting out there was going to meet our customers' expectations. Expect more. Find your tools at OXO.com. Right now, OXO is offering a special discount for proof listeners. Just use the code ATK15 for 15% off on OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO, better guaranteed. As a podcast host, full-time grad student, and dad, I gotta say, I enjoy a glass of wine or three to unwind. And if you're like me and appreciate a nice libation at home, Naked Wines has you covered. They make it easy to get world-class wines delivered to your home. You'll be supporting winemakers who produce wines exclusive to Naked Wines subscribers. And if you're not completely satisfied, there's a hassle-free money-back guarantee. And believe it or not, home delivery is included. Get started today and save $100 off your first order of $140. A six-bottle case starts at just $39.99. Visit NakedWines.com slash SummerProof and you'll have yourself a glass of your own. Naked Wines, from the winemaker to your door. And now, back to our pineapple tale. From this abridged history of post-World War II Taiwan, you can get a sense of some of the identity tensions underlying the Freedom Pineapple campaign. Starting from the arrival of the KMT in Taiwan, there was a stark divide between what it meant to be Chinese versus what it meant to be Taiwanese. But over time, that divide has changed. Being Chinese versus Taiwanese now has more to do with civic identity than ethnic identity. Here's Professor Ho. Like, for example, when I identify myself as Taiwanese, I did not refer to my ancestral origin, but refer to, uh, I identify myself as a citizen of this country rather than citizen of People's Republic of China. So we have this subtle change of what does, what means to be a Taiwanese. According to surveys starting in 1992, the number of people who identify as Taiwanese has tripled in the last few decades. The university running the surveys has asked people to indicate whether they identify themselves as Taiwanese, Chinese, or both. In the 90s, a lot of people would have said they identify as both Taiwanese and Chinese. Part of it depends on how you're interpreting the question. If you ask my mom, for example, it would depend. If you're talking ethnicity or ancestry, she'd say she's Chinese. Her family is originally from China. But if you're asking which she identifies with more, she'd say she's Taiwanese. Her family's been on the island for centuries, so she'd say they're very culturally Taiwanese. She'll say she's a citizen of Taiwan, not China. In the last few decades, the Taiwanese option has far surpassed any other answer, in 2020, over 60% of respondents identified as Taiwanese. About a third identified as both. Only 3% identified as Chinese. This shift coincides with big changes in Taiwan's demographics, politics, and economy. In 1987, the KMT ended martial law. The government was undergoing the process of democratization and decades of reforms led to the first national presidential election in 1996. The balance of political power was shifting. 
Taiwan's pro-independence party won the presidency for the first time in the year 2000. The authoritarian period was over. So, young people growing up in this era experienced a very different Taiwan than their parents did. They felt less attached to the mainland and experienced more freedoms. So when I grew up, when I attended the, the, the public school, everything had been liberalized and a lot of identity or political issue can be freely debated. That's led to a generational divide when it comes to politics and identity. Younger people are more likely to identify as Taiwanese. Older people, Chinese. Brian Hugh is a part of this younger generation. He's a writer and he runs a magazine called New Bloom Magazine. It's a left-wing, English-language activist publication. His family, in his words, is a very KMT family. He spent much of his childhood studying in the U.S. before moving to Taiwan in 2013. But unlike his parents, Brian identifies as Taiwanese. But, you know, I think for me, um, you know, even though I grew up abroad, right, like most of my life has been abroad, I've been affected by these identity changes uh, among young Taiwanese people as well in this kind of odd way. And so I do identify as Taiwanese. While Brian was studying in the U.S., Taiwan was undergoing some big changes that would affect how people thought about their national identity. By the 2000s, globalization had completely restructured Taiwan's economy. Countries in Southeast Asia started exporting way cheaper pineapples, and Taiwan was pushed out of the trade. The workforce had also made a big shift towards industry. Globalization also meant more trade with China, which Brian and many Taiwanese feared would lead to greater Chinese influence in Taiwan. This growing anxiety would ultimately lead to a national political reckoning known as the Sunflower Movement. It's an important chapter to know if you want to understand the identity politics behind the Freedom Pineapple Campaign. When Brian moved back to Taiwan in 2013, fears of China's influence were coming to a head. The KMT had long given up plans to unify Taiwan and China by force, so they turned to the economy. The legislature signed a free trade agreement to open up Taiwan's economy to China. It was supposed to allow Chinese investment and make it easier for Chinese businesses to work in Taiwan. Brian was one of the hundreds of thousands of youth activists opposing the trade agreement. To them, the whole process was opaque, undemocratic, and threatened Taiwan's independence. Critics of the deal worried that if Chinese businesses and investors were allowed to set up shop in Taiwan, China would dominate the island's economy and have much more leverage over its politics. Many feared this could threaten Taiwan's democracy and its distinct national identity. I heard Brian describe the lore of the whole thing at an event he was speaking at. It was reported that the KMT legislator who announced that the law was passed was hiding near a bathroom speaking through a megaphone, apparently to avoid challenge from the opposition party. It said the law was passed in 30 seconds without any review. I wasn't able to figure out how true this story is, but I think the fact that that's how it was portrayed shed some light on how ridiculous people thought it was. This frustration is what kicked off the Sunflower Movement. The Sunflower Movement was a student-led wave of protest triggered by the threat of Chinese influence. In hindsight, some refer to it as a Taiwanese independence movement. Brian's publication was founded during the movement, and he did a lot of research on it. He and his co-founders were also participants. And so for us, I think a lot of it's just, uh, you know, we're mostly millennials, um, some Gen Zers. And so I think for us, it was a kind of criticizing moment for a lot of our politics. And so we were all kind of involved in various ways. 
To Brian and a lot of the people he's interviewed in the aftermath, getting involved in the movement was a way to assert their Taiwanese identity. I think that a lot of people, um, because it was such a generational thing regarding kind of coming of age or, or having these political commitments or wanting to take your future into your own hands, you know, people were just kind of like pulled into it by their friends. Participants in the movement felt they had to do something to defend Taiwan's autonomy and democracy. They set up a camp, held rallies and demonstrations. But at one point, organizers felt they had to escalate the situation. So they stormed the executive building. I also was part of the charge into the executive branch of government, the executive branch. And so um, that was the highest uh, police violence in the movement. Um, and so, uh, you know, water trucks were brought out. Uh, the riot police, you know, just started beating students, um, beating some people bloody, uh, that sort of thing. And so I was there, part of that. Um, that was coordinated as like a secret action uh, to escalate the movement because there was no response from the government for about a week. I asked how Brian felt when the activists stormed the executive building. At that point, he was starting to question what he was doing there. So it was kind of an interesting moment in that sense because you know you have to assess the risk, assess the risks of uh, being involved. Do you think that your you know personal involvement is meaningful in that context? And for me, I thought yes, it did. For young activists like Brian, the Sunflower Movement was this political awakening. It reinforced Taiwanese identity as a form of civic nationalism. Despite coming from all kinds of cultural and ethnic backgrounds, protesters were unified as Taiwanese. And it's all reflected in the polls we talked about earlier. In 2014, you can see a jump in the number of people identifying as Taiwanese. Taiwanese as a civic identity was spreading, and it was making its way into electoral politics. After the protests and public outcry, the trade agreement was never put into effect, and the Sunflower Movement came to represent a decades-long transformation in Taiwanese society. I think that uh, politics, I think, has basically changed from being thought of as a kind of elite, uh, you know, the domain of elites. These people are kind of above everyday life. Um, they're not like everyday people. So now you have people running for office. They're not just elite doctors or uh, politicians or political families that, you know, are political dynasties. Um, but they're regular people that are younger, uh, they're students, or they have these ideals, or they've done something. Um, and that's kind of changed. The Sunflower Movement transformed Taiwanese politics, and you can see that legacy in the Freedom Pineapple campaign. While people were buying up pineapples and posting about it on social media, the fruit became a symbol of national pride. It's all an expression of that civic identity spread by the Sunflower Movement. After the Sunflower Movement, Taiwan's pro-independence party, the DPP, rode this wave of Taiwanese nationalism all the way to the presidency. 2016 was the first time a non-KMT party took control of the legislative branch. The DPP still holds majorities in the government. But mainland China hasn't been too happy about pro-independence politicians running things in Taiwan. Professor Ho says that over the last decade, the government of China has used trade to target supporters of the pro-independence party. China has become the largest source uh, for Taiwan's food and fruit export. Chinese government has weaponized the food import from early, early on because food growers were typically concentrated in southern Taiwan. And southern Taiwan happened to be the stronghold for pro-independence DPP party. And while Taiwanese identity has been on the rise, China could have been trying to put the brakes on that momentum with the pineapple ban. Lindsay Gorman says there's a pattern of this type of behavior in China's foreign policy. 
I'm Lindsay Gorman. I'm the Fellow for Emerging Technologies at the Alliance for Securing Democracy. I study how authoritarian states influence democracies around the world. Lindsay studied Chinese foreign policy extensively. So when the government announced the pineapple ban, she immediately recognized it as a familiar tactic. So why we're seeing this economic leverage being used, especially now, is that China is becoming more assertive. It's becoming more aggressive on the world stage. This is something China has continuously done. And in in our research, we found that China has used what we call economic coercion uh, as a tool for interference in democracies 60 times since 2000. With the pineapple ban, China has employed what's called a carrot and stick strategy. First, the government weaponizes its huge market of consumers. That can come in the form of a ban, tariff, etc. The stick. Then, it offers some concessions. After the pineapple ban, the Chinese government announced a bunch of incentives to attract Taiwanese investors and farmers to China. Things like land rights, subsidies, lines of credit, the carrot. The goal is to coax politicians and the public into doing something the Chinese government wants. You can see how this strategy might have been used to chip away at Taiwan's distinct national identity. In 2010, for example, China banned the import of Norwegian salmon. The ban was announced after the Nobel Committee in Oslo awarded the peace prize to a Chinese human rights activist, Liu Xiaopo. He was involved in the 1989 Tiananmen Square protest and was in prison during the award ceremony. The committee famously displayed the award in an empty chair. And then relations only began to thaw in 2016 when China actually got the Norwegian government to sign a statement that effectively amounted to an apology for their awarding of the Nobel Prize uh, to this human rights activist. So in in that case, we really saw how China uses its economy and the way that just simply buying goods, foods, salmon, pineapples, fruits, wines, can actually influence what a country says about China. Even more recently, in 2020, China slapped a bunch of tariffs on Australian exports. Officially, the government accused Australia of dumping, which is when one country dumps cheap goods into another country to hurt the domestic economy. But the Chinese government also issued a list of 14 grievances against Australia, including what they called incessant interference in China's policies on Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Xinjiang. It triggered the Freedom Wine campaign on social media. Diplomats and politicians around the world voiced support for Australian wine exporters. It looked a lot like Taiwan's Freedom Pineapples. When China initially announced its ban on Taiwanese pineapples, they claimed imported batches of the fruit were infested with pests. But in reality, many are thinking that the real reason behind the ban was actually just to exert more control over the island that China claims as its own. Taiwan has become a vibrant democracy, and China has been looking to assert control over the island to reclaim it. That's when President Tsai, along with Taiwanese diplomats and politicians, flooded the internet with hashtag Freedom Pineapple posts. It triggered a huge wave of pineapple consumption and creative pineapple dishes. And of course, that's how pineapple beef noodle soup ended up on Chef Hong's menu. The Freedom Pineapple campaign became an outpouring of Taiwanese pride. It was a huge demonstration of support for Taiwanese identity. So in the case of Chinese economic coercion in Taiwan, It's completely backfired, in part, and perhaps in whole, actually, because of the success 
of this campaign. According to Taiwan's agricultural minister, within a week, farmers had received pre-orders for more thousands of tons of pineapple than the quantity of exports to China in an entire year. So within one week, people were buying more pineapples than they would normally sell to China in an entire year just because of this Freedom Pineapple campaign. Those orders came from beverage shops, wholesalers, street vendors, overseas groups, and more. The state brewing company even increased its production of pineapple-flavored beer. In response to the ban, the Minister of Agriculture also said Taiwan is now looking to develop new trade partnerships with Singapore, Malaysia, and Australia. So what started as a move for control over kind of an unlikely fruit in geopolitical competition turned into uh, putting pineapples uh, in a symbol of freedom in this modern-day contest between democracy and authoritarianism. So in the end, Lindsay says Taiwan won the pineapple war. The Freedom Pineapple campaign was so compelling that even the conservative, typically pro-China KMT party got in on it. Calls to support Taiwanese farmers came from all sides of the political spectrum. An important caveat in all of this is that the clear enthusiasm in the Freedom Pineapple campaign doesn't exactly mean everyone buying pineapples is pro-independence. In Taiwanese politics, the discourse around independence is its whole own thing. People's thoughts on identity and national independence are nuanced and diverse. Like I said at the top of the episode, it's all complicated. That said, I think the story behind the Freedom Pineapple has been pretty eye-opening to me. It's impossible to define exactly what identity means for an entire country, and there will obviously never be one answer for any group of people. For myself, I've learned that being Taiwanese-American is what you make of it. That's because identity is ultimately constructed. It's shaped by history and circumstance, and it can change, like we saw in the history of Taiwan and the Sunflower Movement. I thought Brian put it nicely when he told me that there's no unshakable bedrock to identity. I can't define what it means for me to be Taiwanese in a sentence, and I don't think many could. It's different for everyone, but at the end of this saga, there is one symbol unifying people of all backgrounds, the pineapple. Thanks to Kai McNamee for bringing us this story. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm executive producer Caitlin Kelleher. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm senior producer Caroline Rickert. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by... Matt Poynton. And... Anya Gzeshik. Of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sound's composer theme music. Additional music by Cal Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis. Is our post-production supervisor, and our line producer is... Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by... Angela Yang. Special thanks to Kyle Shernuck for providing translations, and to Kai's mom, Jessica, for being a part of this story. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen, and David Nussbaum is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors for this season, OXO, Naked Wines, Veroni, and Porter Road. 
Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. 